All right, my friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast, where, as always, we'll discuss the professional literature and the evidence-based protocol as they relate to the effective treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms. I'm Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist, and this, well, this is OCD Straight Talk. So someone reached out to me uh, with um, a question that I think is a very practical question. I think it's a question that to one extent or another, every individual listening to this podcast um, um, can relate. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, um, it's a line of thinking that we have all drawn and uh, um, and, and a matter of distinction that we should all work to make. It's a great question. It's one of those questions that I would call a bullseye question. Center of the target. Perfect question. It's a question that um, that seeks to make space for logic. We might say reason. But at the same time, works to distinguish between healthy reasoning and unhealthy reasoning, recognizing that the line between the two is not always straight or clear. Sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference between rational thinking and rumination. So the question is, in effect, how do we arrive at a place where we meaningfully distinguish one from the other? So if we look back in time, from where we stand today at 2021, back a handful of decades, and we keep traveling back into the early 1960s, the early 1950s, into the days of Eric Erickson and Alfred Adler, a few years before that, into the days of Sigmund Freud. You know, we're in the the early 1900s, 20s, 30s, moving forward again. What we have is this really well-defined theory of psychoanalysis. And, and psychodynamic theory really works to understand not just some symptoms, but really largely all symptoms um, of a psychological kind as being related to unconscious material, unconscious conflicts and wounds. And as time moves forward, we begin to diversify to some real degree are thinking about etiology. Etiology meaning how symptoms or why symptoms emerge to begin with. It's not necessarily a question of why symptoms are maintained over the course of time, or maybe why they increase in severity at at particular moments. But etiology is the idea, it's the question, really it's the answer uh, to why symptoms happen to begin with. So 
that question was was answered quite quite one dimensionally in the uh, the early part of the twentieth century, even into the mid part of the twentieth century. But as the nineteen sixties and seventies came and went, what happened for us? was we began to diversify into behavioral conceptualizations and, and, and cognitive conceptualizations. We began to look at individuals as, as unique to themselves, not all having uh, a one-dimensional explanation as to why their symptoms happened, but, but being able to recognize that it's a little bit more complicated than that. In some instances, it's a lot more complicated than that. So as, as the, the, the late 1970s arrive, so does a researcher by the name of Al Ellis. Al Ellis, the father of the cognitive revolution, really began to, um, along with other thinkers as well, um, Aaron Beck, uh, Judith Beck, um, David Burns, Many thinkers and writers uh, like these, but but quite correctly, Albert Ellis is is uh, is remembered as the father of the cognitive revolution. Uh, the 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 researcher, the thinker, the writer, the clinician who really ushered in a new wave of of psychology. And the the new wave of psychology turned its focus um, uh, to some extent. Now, Al, Al Ellis himself is a bit of an anomaly here. He, that is to say, he did this to a lesser extent than did uh, 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 others after him. Uh, but, but the cognitive revolution really brought this notion where we're going to turn our attention to some degree from the unconscious mind and, uh, and wounds of the past to more present um, clinical conceptualization where we're, we're really looking at um, behavioral patterns. We're looking at um, thought processes. We're looking at how emotionality is, is related to the way that people think and the way that people behave and that these pieces are connected to each other. And, and, and we can, we can work to create changes um, in in uh, patients' uh, thinking and and behavioral patterns, such that they begin to feel not just different, but they begin to feel better, such that psychotherapy can be oriented to this sort of effort, and that empirical processes—that is to say, uh, evidence-based psychotherapy—can um, can begin to tackle specific symptom sets related to this idea. So the cognitive revolution really opened a way for us to not spend um, inordinate volumes of, of time and money in psychotherapy, but it became a, a much more solution-focused idea. Ever-present um, at the point of symptoms not so much focusing on decades and decades past. Now, that doesn't mean 
that that kind of, of, of thing never happens in psychotherapy. No, no, no. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, but as a, as a primary goal, as a, um, you know, as something that we, uh, work to do as a standard practice across cases, no, generally not so much anymore. So Al Ellis, along again with Aaron Beck and many others, ushered in this this newer wave, this newer way of thinking and psychological practicing that instead of focusing on the past, it focused on the present. There is still more dis, uh, distinguishing, however, for us to do, uh, even here in this particular episode on OCD Straight Talk. Because here we are, we are talking about modern um, thinking and and modern conceptualization of clinical processes, but we haven't really begun to get into the nuts and the bolts of what it means to do good exposure and response prevention. We might say that EXRP began with Al Ellis. That wouldn't quite be true, but we might say theoretically good exposure and response prevention began with Al Ellis, began with Aaron Beck. After all, and I think it really is true to say that exposure and response prevention is an outgrowth of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, I think that's true. We might say that exposure and response prevention is a diagnosis-specific form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, some people would say that's not true, but I think theoretically we can say it really is. It's it's in keeping with the theory of CBT. It may not be classical CBT in action. That's also true. So in other words, there are meaningful distinctions to be drawn between something like rational emotive behavior therapy, which is really the baby of Albert Ellis, and uh, cognitive therapy, which is really the baby of Aaron Beck. And by baby, of course, I mean these are the the brain children of of these thinkers and, and writers. There's a distinction to be drawn between something like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and exposure and response prevention or EXRP. There's a, there's a distinction. What is that distinction? What's the substance of the difference between the two? Many clinicians would not necessarily see a difference at all. Many clinicians would see exposure and response prevention as CBT. That is to say, they're synonyms for one another. And while this is not fully incorrect, it's not correct either. Many clinicians would would conceptualize these interventions as, as the same thing. And in some real way, that itself is the reason that many clinicians don't effectively treat conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, that's not a shot at those clinicians, whoever they are, wherever they are. That's not a shot at them. I'm not meaning to in some way disparage those clinicians, but just to state the fact that that some clinicians really um, um, treat uh, OCD 
at an expert level. And that's not merely because they've done it a lot. It's because they do something in treatment that's different from those clinicians who conceptualize CBT and EXRP as one and the same intervention. These, these clinicians who, who regularly engage therapeutic work for OCD not only have a lot of experience doing it, but they, they conceptualize, they understand an important difference between these two interventions. So again, what is the difference? Well, we did an episode on this some number of weeks back. It may surprise you to hear that the difference is not behavioral. You, you hear me say this kind of thing all the time, uh, episode after episode, where we're talking about stopping compulsions and that that working to identify and, and prevent rituals is, is absolutely the essence of, uh, uh, you know, kind of the active ingredient uh, in good therapeutic work for OCD. It might surprise you to hear me say the, the, uh, uh, the substance of the difference between CBT and EXRP is not behavioral. I say that because the B in CBT stands for behavior or behavioral. So we're not going to say that, well, you know, the substance of the difference between them is one focuses on behavioral change while the other doesn't. No, that's, that's not correct. It's true that we are focusing on behavioral change uh, as the active ingredient to getting better, but it's not true that the way that we work to meaningfully separate one from the other is by focusing on behavior. Because again, both of them do that. However, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, in keeping with the idea of the cognitive revolution, starting with Al Ellis and rational emotive behavior therapy, moving forward to Aaron Beck and cognitive therapy, uses the weighing of evidence, uses um, the consideration of reason in the process of restructuring cognitions. There's this idea uh, in which these uh, interventions are working to change uh, thought processes by weighing the evidence for Uh, or against their veracity, veracity meaning truthfulness. So these, these, uh, these interventions focus on um, working to change thought patterns by looking uh, uh, through the lens of reason. In other words, we can say it this way. Uh, EXRP runs toward uncertainty while CBT runs away. The idea of, of embracing uncertainty really is the heartbeat of good exposure and response prevention. Yes, we're working to identify and stop compulsions, but the very attitude 
the conscious attitude with which we are doing that is by embracing uncertainty, not running from it, but running toward it, acknowledging its presence and using its presence as an advantage to be able to stop compulsions. Whereas something like CBT or or rational emotive behavior therapy works to uh, consider um, reason, consider evidence for, for the disputation of thoughts. That is to say, to get rid of those thoughts, to at least quiet them down and to thereby reduce the anxiety that is that is uh, correspond, uh, corresponding to those thoughts, right? So we're, we're working to use the evidence, the reason, and thereby pursue some sense of certainty. We're working to gravitate toward, now we're never going to arrive at certainty in this life. That's not ever going to happen. And that's why we wear seatbelts in cars and why we have car insurance. You know, that, that's, that's why we have locks on our doors and, and all manner of, of, uh, of mitigators of unknowns um, because we can't ever arrive at a place of, of, uh, of certainty in this life. But we, we can and, and, and we tirelessly do work to gravitate toward certainty. And that's exactly what CBT works to do for the purpose of reducing maladaptive thinking, and clinically significant symptomatology. We, it, uses, it uses reason and the weighing of evidence, again, to dispute maladaptive thinking. So what's the difference between cognitive therapy and EXRP? One uses uncertainty while the other one works to toss it away. Both focus on behavior change. So back to the question, how do you tell the difference between rational thinking and rumination? How do you tell the difference? How do you work to distinguish between rumination, which is a compulsion, and a compulsion that keeps OCD symptoms going? And rational thinking, which in some psychotherapeutic circles is actually seen as a beneficial psychotherapeutic tool. It's a really important question. In other words, when we really get at the brass tacks of this thing, what we're saying is that certain strategies within modern psychotherapy can actually keep people symptomatic by by working to weigh evidence. You know, let, 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 let's um, let's say it this way. I wonder how many of you have ever sat with a psychotherapist and the psychotherapist has said, oh, that's an irrational thought. I don't, I don't know how many of you have, but I've sat with many people, many people through the years who have shared a thought with me. Maybe it was a hypochondriacal thought or... Uh, you know, maybe it was a thought related to social anxiety. Maybe it was some sort of contamination, OCD thought, or whatever it was. And and after sharing the worry with me, hastened to add, look, look, I know that's irrational. 
And so many times have I waited for a moment, uh, you know, to, to speak up and to help the individual to see so often, so often, it's not the, it's not the irrational. It's not the thoughts that are irrational. It's not the obsessions. It's not these unwanted cognitions that are irrational. It's the, uh, it's the ritualistic patterns that are irrational. I mean, let me kind of put some flesh on the bones here. Let's put it in the context of social anxiety. Maybe the thought is, maybe the thought is, um, you know, um, people are laughing at me, right? I walk into a room and I have the thought, nobody wants me here. People are laughing at me. I feel anxious. And I begin to look around. I'm looking at faces. I'm sort of scanning the room. I'm looking for evidence that supports the thought. People are laughing at me. I'm looking for people laughing or smiling. I'm, I'm looking for people looking at me. I'm looking for evidence that people are trying to avoid me. Like I, I'm, I'm, you, you see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm looking around trying to somehow confirm my fear, hoping that I can't, and at the same time, engaging behaviors that are purposed to reduce my anxiety. So let's suppose I walk into a psychotherapy appointment with that particular thought on my mind, and I share with my therapist, I mean, when I walk into, you know, like a, like a party, like I, I know everybody's laughing at me. At least that's the thought that goes through my mind. I know it's irrational. And the therapist says, yeah, so, so what happens next? Well, so I, I guess I, I sort of, you know, I feel really nervous and I'm like looking around and maybe I'm sort of hanging out in the corner because I, you know, it kind of feels like everybody's laughing at me or whatever. I mean, I know it's irrational, but I just can't seem to shake it. So the therapist says, well, is it possible that everybody's laughing at you? I mean, is it possible that, 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 that people are actually talking about the guy over in the corner? Is it possible? Well, yeah, I guess it's possible. I hope not, but I guess it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. So is it irrational to think that that's happening? Is it irrational to think? Well, what do you mean? Uh, well, what I mean is, you know, we're not talking about growing wings and, and flapping your arms and flying to the moon. That's not possible. But but you walk into a party and people are actually sort of taking notice of you and and talking about you. That's not impossible. That is possible. So that's not irrational that 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 you know that, that kind of thing is happening when you walk into a room. You know, that you know, that last Tuesday night when you went to that that bar, that it's not irrational to think that there, maybe there were people that were talking about you and maybe even laughing at your expense. That's not impossible. It's not irrational. What is irrational is looking around the room, not seeing anyone actively laughing at you and concluding that no one is. That's irrational because the real possibility the real possibility is that people are talking about you and you just don't hear it or you just don't see it. You just don't know it. But to think it's not happening because you don't see it after looking around the room pretty carefully, that is kind of irrational. 
right? I'm not saying it is happening, but I am saying it could be. The point is you don't really know. That's the point. You don't really know what other people are thinking about you, what other people are saying about you outside of your own earshot. You don't really know what's going on for for them about you. And no amount of sitting there in the corner looking around the room is going to change that you still don't know. You still don't know. You're stuck with it. No matter how hard you work to try and put the puzzle pieces together so you have some sense of certainty about what's going on around the room about you, you still don't know. You can sit there and set up cameras around the room, which would be really weird, and have them rolling all night and then the next day look at all the cameras looking for evidence and you're still not going to know. Right, it's very possible. Maybe, maybe you do see somebody laughing at you. Maybe you do. It's going to be hard to make out what they're saying. But let's 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 go. Let's take it a step farther. Maybe you are you're able to to somehow definitively find a piece of of evidence. Maybe even two or three. And there's several uh, distinct uh, d- definitive points in in the evening where you you're able to detect someone is is looking or talking or or laughing. And and you're pretty sure it's at you. The question becomes, how do you know what they're really thinking? Now, now bear with me a moment. Think with me for a second. How do you know what they're really thinking? So, I mean, I remember doing this one um, exposure with this individual, and um, and she um, she was like this really. Uh, pretty lady and she had had some very significant anxiety about her hair. And so she uh, would work to, to cut her hair uh, and sit in front of the mirror, right? So she'd cut her hair over here and then cut it over there and, and try and really work hard so that the hair was, was kind of, um, was even, you know, on both sides. And, and she'd sit there for what really amounted to many, many minutes at a time. And when I say many minutes, I'm not talking about four minutes or five minutes. I mean, this would go on and on for a long period of time. And she would kind of snip off a little bit here and, and snip off a little bit there. And, um, you know, and over the course of time, uh, she went from having a full head of, of long, curly uh, hair uh, to having her uh, head shaved. Right When I met her, she had a shaved head. Um, and, and, and a significant part of the reason that her head was shaved was because after cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting for, for not merely minutes, uh, or, or days or weeks, but, but eventually this got into months of, of cutting. Well, eventually she really had not much of any hair left and the hair that she did have, of course, felt so, or seemed so, um, um, uh, just sort of, uh, uneven and, uh, and, and felt so wrong, um, that the only thing that she knew to do to make it even again was to simply cut it all off and start over. Yet, even then there was obviously significant anxiety for her about the way that she looked. So she ended up in therapy and, um, 
And we ended up doing lots of different uh, exposure exercises. But one of the ones that we really focused on was um, was taking a um, was taking a wig and purposefully cutting the wig so that it was uneven, um, really obviously and glaringly uneven. We worked to uh, to make the wig such that when she went out into public, it was difficult for anyone to notice how uneven it was. We sort of exaggerated the whole idea of it so that she was forced to not just worry about the possibility of uneven hair, but it was it was uh, a visible reality, not just to her, but to everyone around her. You might think, well, what does that have to do with the party that we were talking about a moment ago? Well, what it has to do with the party is she would scan people's faces. She would look as we were walking around in public places or, 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 um, or going to, uh, um, you know, to a coffee shop and, and sitting down in the coffee shop and sitting there for a long period of time and people would come and go. There were plenty of eyes on her hair. Or at least so she thought. She was sure people were snickering and looking. People were talking about her. She was sure. The trouble was she she couldn't hear what they were saying. The, the trouble was she didn't know that when someone would laugh across the room that they were laughing at her. She didn't know that because, again, she couldn't hear the conversations. She uh, she didn't know that when they glanced at her, that they were purposefully glancing to look at her. She didn't know that. She just she just knew that for a moment in time she caught uh, eye contact with another person in the coffee shop. She just was able to see that, and 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 that much she knew. She knew that someone laughed. She knew that someone glanced. She knew that that maybe for a moment, I'm certain we were looking at each other. But what what I don't know, what I don't know is what they're saying. What I don't know is what they're thinking. So for her, one certain way to stop people from laughing at her was to leave. One certain way was to stare around the room looking, looking to try and and count the number of individuals she could find glancing or laughing. But even embedded in the certainty there, she's left with, I don't know, when I leave the restaurant, does that mean nobody anymore is going to be laughing at me? I don't know that. Do I know that people are laughing at me now? I don't know that. Well, if I keep looking and I can see how many people are glancing over at me, at least I know how many people have noticed my hair. Then again, I don't really know that either. How many people happen to glance in my direction 
who haven't really taken notice of my hair. Then again, how many people aren't glancing right now who have taken notice of my hair? I don't know. I'm stuck. I'm stuck with this uncertainty. And the difference between exposure and response prevention and cognitive behavioral therapy and, and uh, those um, modalities that are sympathetic to the cognitive revolution is that exposure and response prevention embraces uncertainty and works to focus on behavioral change in light of it. Whereas something like rational emotive behavior therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy work uh, instead to, to use uh, that which um, is rational and, and reasonable, that which uh, is, is empirically um, uh, knowable, that is to say, evidence, right? Evidence and reason to modify bad thoughts or maladaptive cognitions for the purpose of working to achieve No therapeutic progress. So I think there's that question that we're left with. How do you tell the difference between the two? And how do you tell the difference, that is to say, between uh, uh, rumination and rational thinking? I think that with all that stuff in mind that we've worked to, to, to discuss and to unpack, when you look at the function and the purpose of rumination, what is it? What's the function? I mean, we all have ruminated. We all know what that is. We all understand that mental ritual and the function of the purpose of something like rumination is we're working to arrive at a place where we're reasonably sure that our fears aren't happening or aren't going to happen or didn't happen, right? We're, we're working to gravitate towards certainty. We're, re we're reviewing information or we're reviewing uh, conversations we had in our mind, um, or we're, we're remembering in specific detail places that we walked or, or objects that we touched, um, you know, and so on this kind of thing, whether it be, um, lists of symptoms or, or other pieces, uh, groups of data for the purpose of working to gravitate towards certainty as a way of reducing anxiety and disputing thoughts. Well, how is that different from rational thinking? How is that distinct from rational thinking? Rational thinking works to do very much the same thing. Very much the same thing. So I think, how do we tell the difference between the two of them? I think that ultimately the answer is, I don't know that we do. I don't know that we do. And this is precisely why exposure and response prevention, uh, the, the most well-researched uh, intervention for OCD by a very long distance, precisely for that reason, does not... Um, include the, the, uh, the, the active process of modifying cognitions. We can work to dismiss thoughts as I've talked about on this podcast by way of uncertainty 
You know, how do we work to let go of these unwanted thoughts? Well, we use a technique that focuses on uncertainty for, for that purpose. But if we're going to use rational thinking, we may find that to some degree we're able to dispute unwanted thoughts. But for many of us, that process will only end with those thoughts coming right back. That's why they're called intrusive thoughts. Because they intrude. They're unwanted. They're not knocking on the door asking for permission. They're intruding into our consciousness as unwanted, intrusive thoughts. So working to use reason, working to use evidence, working to dispute thoughts by way of certainty or some attempt to arrive at something like certainty, to gravitate toward certainty, is very, very often going to be quite associated with engaging a compulsion. So at the end of the day, this is why exposure and response prevention doesn't use reason evidence. We simply embrace uncertainty and we work to stop compulsions. This really is the making of good exposure work. Hope this has been helpful for you. Thanks for the question. Reach out with any questions you might have to chrislines04gmail.com. And thanks very much for listening to OCD Straight Talk.